Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum, we go back to March 1st, 2017, when former United States President George W. Bush came to the Reagan Library to discuss his brand new book, Portraits of Courage, a Commander-in-Chief's Tribute to America's Warriors. President Bush was so moved by the sacrifices of our wounded American warriors that he began the challenge of capturing and mortalizing their courage on canvas. Through his paintings, he was able to take their strength, their dignity, their perseverance, and their patriotism, and lift it up for all of us to see on a much deeper and intimate level. Portraits of Courage tells the stories of 66 brave souls. President Bush said his goal was to honor our men and women in uniform, to highlight family members and caregivers who bear the burden of their sacrifice, to encourage those who may be struggling to get the help they need, and to help Americans support our veterans and empower them to succeed. After reading the book, there is no question our 43rd president has fulfilled his noble objectives. During the program, President Bush sat down with the Reagan Foundation and Institute's board chairman to discuss his paintings, wounded warriors, and his family. Let's listen. Well, now it is my great honor to introduce a talented American artist who through his paintings has further revealed the depth of his compassion and character, the 43rd president of the United States, George W. Bush. Thank you, Mr. President, thank you. Thank you, Fred. Sit down. Thank you all. Please. You're eating into airtime. <laughs> Fred, thanks. Thanks for your kind remarks. Thanks so much for inviting me back. I also want to thank John, uh, the trustees, Michaels. Good to see you again. Uh, and my buddy Brian Flom, who we'll talk about in a little bit, but he's here, Brian's here. I painted him, and I asked his mother what, what she thought of the painting, and uh, I always thought he, he, he had a face only a mother could love. Anyway, I, uh, <laughs> and she liked it, which is uh, a, a huge relief. <laughs> Elton, good to see you again, yeah. Anyway, ready to roll. All right, well, Mr. President, as you can see, we have a full house. We are streaming this online, and on television, and uh, there have been a number of questions submitted uh, about the book, about your painting, and a few other subjects, and we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. But I just want to mention to those here and uh, online that the book is now available, Portraits of Courage. It's already a top seller on Amazon, or if you go to the Bush Center directly at uh, bushcenter.org, the book is available straight from the source, and I saw on there that there's a special deluxe edition that's personally signed by the president. Yeah. And all the proceeds, I think people know this, but it's important to emphasize, all the proceeds of this book will go to the veterans' causes that the Bush Center is serving. Well, Mr. President, the first thing that everyone wants to know is when did you start painting? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I was an art agnostic for most of my life. <laughs> It's a terrible admission to make, I know. 
uh, I get back from Washington, and uh, I wrote a book, and then another book. I'm trying to stay fit. I'm working a lot at the Bush Center there in Dallas, but it wasn't enough. You got to understand, when you're the president, you're going 100 miles an hour, and then the next day it's zero. And I had, I, I, I just, I had this kind of anxiousness to get to keep keep moving and to learn something. And so I read Winston Churchill's essay, Painting as a Pastime. I'm a big admirer of Churchill. He's a great leader. And he took up painting. And this essay is worth reading. And, you know, I basically said, what the hell, this guy can paint, I can paint. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told that to Laura, and she said, yeah, sure. <laughs> And I hired an instructor, Gail, and she came over to the house, and she said, you know, what's your objective? And I said, well, Gail, there's a Rembrandt trapped in this body. <laughs> <laughs> and so she came back, realizing I was serious, and I painted a cube, and then I painted a watermelon. And uh, it was a liberating experience. Not only was it liberating, it was an unbelievable learning experience. So. I've been painting ever since, for about five years. Well, the first question we have is from Bettina. And she asks, did you have a history of painting as a child earlier in your life? And did your mom tape any of your school paintings on the refrigerator? Well, uh, I'm sure I was a finger painter. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Bettina, I, I, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't all that interested in art. Uh, and uh, now I am. So it goes to show you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, when you get to be our age, <laughs> 70, uh, and you're sitting around with your pals, you know, there's only two topics of conversation generally. What medicines are you taking? <laughs> and how are your grandkids? And my buddies uh, say, man, you got a passion for painting. I said, yeah, you ought to try it. I can't paint, they say. I said, you know, it's funny. I said the same thing till five years ago. I'm living proof of, to, uh, to tell you that you don't know what you can do unless you try it. And so my call for aging baby boomer is, leg it out, you know? <laughs> Run to the finish line. And uh, painting has enabled me to do that. Next question is, what medicines are you taking, and how are you? <laughs> uh, oh, the grandkids are great. <laughs> Very strong, Fred. I didn't, think, I didn't think you had it in you. But... Trying my best, Mr. Awesome. Professor. <laughs> Very good. Uh, next, uh, it's a question from Janet. She said, uh, you started painting farm animals and world leaders. When did you decide to paint Wounded Warriors? Uh, when, who was the first and why? Well, thank you. Uh, I, 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 actually, what happened was my mother, uh, who is, uh, can be quite plain spoken, uh, <laughs> heard I was painting, and she basically said, you can't paint. <laughs> By the way, this is a woman when I told her I was going to run against Ann Richards uh, in 1993, said, you can't win. <laughs> and I said, I damn sure can paint. And so, and so she said, paint my dogs. And so I became a pet portrait painter for a period of time. And I painted Bob the cat and, you know, Bernie the cat and Barney. And uh, 
And so, uh, uh, and then a, an instructor in Dallas. One of the greatest things any instructor can do is to set new horizons for a student. And uh, my instructor brought over this artist. He said, you know, you ought to paint the portraits of world leaders. And, you know, I'm sitting there as kind of a fledgling artist, and I'm saying, this guy thinks I can actually do that? And I did it. And, uh, and so uh, I've got uh, two instructors now, and one of them was at the house, and I uh, said, you know, I understand you painted these world leaders. And I said, yeah. He said, you ought to paint the portraits of people nobody knows. And it dawned on me that I ought to paint these warriors, who I do know. So at the Bush Center, we have mountain bike rides and golf uh, tournaments with these wounded vets. And uh, like Brian's a, a biker, and, and I got to know Brian. And then I started studying their stories. And the first guy I painted was Major Chris Turner, and I was sitting next to Turner at a dinner, and I said, why are you here? He said, because I can't get out of my mind seeing a buddy of mine killed. And uh, I paint from pictures and uh, our photos. And as I'm painting Turner, I'm thinking about what that must be like in his mind. And so it's the first one in there. And, and uh, he then writes me a letter later. And as a result of standing up at our event, he's much more comfortable talking about the invisible wounds of war. One of the real problems we face is there's a huge stigma. Brian will tell you, he's working with a lot of troops. And they don't want to talk about it. They think people won't understand me, or I won't get promoted, or I'll never get hired. And so they keep it inside, which oftentimes leads to self-medication. Turner writes me a letter saying, you know, standing up and talking about it has enabled me to start sharing my story more and more, which is step one to seeking help. And so I repainted Turner. I've only painted two people in the book. I mean, I painted the same portrait again. And I was trying to show people uh, how, how one can improve when you deal with the stigma and seek help. And I was hoping to show people that I improved as a painter as well. <laughs> uh, the next question from Isabella uh, follows up on a little bit of what you were saying. It was, what is the process for painting one of your portraits? Do they sit in the studio? Uh, do you paint from photos? And do they get to see and improve it? Approve no. it? And have you ever had somebody who was an unhappy subject? Yeah, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I painted Laura one time. I thought it was a pretty good painting. And, uh, you know, at first it was too anguished, and then it was too this, and then it was too that. I finally said, forget it. <laughs> I did paint my mother uh, for her uh, 90th birthday, and it was a painting of her walking her two dogs on the beach in Kennebunkport, Maine. But in order to deal with the angst that Laura had showed me, I painted Mom from the back. <laughs> Uh, I, I do paint from photos. I've never, uh, the only person I painted live is me. So one of my instructors convinced me to paint myself looking in a mirror. And it's a pretty grim looking expression on the face because it's hard to paint and smile while you're looking in a mirror. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, no, I never run it by. I didn't run it by the vets. You know, I was just hoping beyond all hope they liked it. I was nervous about some of them. I wasn't nervous about Brian's. I think it's a good painting. Some of them, uh, you know, there's a guy in there named Todd. When you read the book, he, Todd wrote us a letter about uh, what it was like to be in war. And, was, and uh, when I was painting Todd, uh, I, I, he, he told us he had night sweats. And I was thinking about what it's like to have night sweats. And so it's, it's a pretty dark painting. 
in a sense. And uh, I saw Todd at uh, McDill in Tampa two days ago. And I said, let me show you your painting. And he said, man, it's really good. I said, Todd, you know, I look, I'm no longer the commander in chief. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me the truth. And he liked it. And it was a great relief for me. I think he liked it because I captured the anguish he felt. But he doesn't feel it anymore. And so, you know, I, I wish I could repaint him. But, you know, book's out. <laughs> a question from Meredith. And she asks, which of the Wounded Warrior portraits was the toughest one for you to paint? Well, they're all tough in a way, uh, uh, when you think about it, because every one of these uh, uh, men and women have, uh, some of them have very physical wounds of war, and some of them, uh, all of them have, uh, one way or the other, PTS or traumatic brain injury. And so when you think about that, that it, it, it was hard to do. On the other hand, you know, I, I had such great pride uh, in knowing them. See, look, I'm a baby boomer, which means Vietnam War. Remember what it was like when there was a draft and a war? A lot of people didn't understand it. There was huge angst, and when the vets came home, they were treated despicably. And so we get attacked, and I made it abundantly clear uh, that, uh, you know, we're going to defend the country. And millions volunteered. It's a totally different attitude. And to be able to salute people who volunteered in the face of danger was a high honor. And so oftentimes I thought about the integrity and the courage of those who are willing to volunteer to wear the uniform. And so in painting them, was, I had a lot of pride in painting them. And, uh, you know, they were, uh, I guess the toughest was the one with me and, and Melissa Stockwell dancing. So Melissa Stockwell was the uh, first lieutenant, the first woman to lose her leg in combat. Fabulous athlete, by the way. Wins a bronze medal at the Paralympics in Rio this year in the triathlon. Mm. And, I, and I'm sitting next to Melissa after one of our bike rides, and she said, let's dance. I said, no, I don't want to dance. <laughs> I'm not a very good dancer. And anyway, she convinced me to dance, and so I painted Melissa and me. The easy part was her. The hard part was me, because uh, for most of the painting, I looked like Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> Remember him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He ran for president. Yeah, what me worry. Yeah, he did. <laughs> uh, Mr. President, Caroline from Maryland asks, where do you usually do your painting? Who cleans up after you? <laughs> and how long does it take you to do a portrait from start to finish? Yeah, that's a great question. I paint upstairs at our house. I, I built a studio there. I've got a studio at the ranch, and, and I've added one in Kenny Bunkport. Uh, uh, and so I've got places where, uh, where I can retreat to. And uh, I clean up <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> uh, Laura's uh, a neat nick. And oil painting is uh, not neat. <laughs> I mean, I spread like phthalo blue. I limit my palette, by the way, to two yellows, two reds, and phthalo blue and a white, which mm. teaches you how to mix colors. And phthalo blue is a very powerful blue. And like, you got just a little nick on your finger and you happen to not get it totally clean and you lie down on the white bedspread? <laughs> Thalo blue. <laughs> and so, uh, I, I try to, I'm not a very good cleaner, to be frank with you. Uh, this took me a year to paint the 98 portraits. Uh, a portrait is, a painting is really never done. 
I mean, you can, I, I look at some of these portraits and say, gosh, I wish I could put them back on the easel and keep painting. But at some point, you got to just call it quits. And uh, so I lived with these portraits for, you know, a year, some more complete than others. And I would go upstairs and I'd look at O'Brien and say, I think I better touch him up a little more. <laughs> so it's a never ending process. And so I, I can't answer that question. Well, Michael in Greenwich asks, have you ever been unhappy with one of your paintings and tossed it aside? Have you ever done yeah, that all again? the time? Is that right? Yeah. A lot of times I'll, I'll paint and then I'll get in bed and think about it and then hustle upstairs and scrape it all off. That's the great thing about oil painting because uh, you can paint, scrape, paint, scrape. Uh, I tried acrylics, but it dries so fast that there's no scraping. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. The good thing about oil is you can keep painting over it until you get, right. until you get it where you're comfortable. Um, there were some questions beyond the painting and more of those to come back to, but a question uh, from Betty in Washington, D.C. She writes, in a time that some would call uncertainty, what can you tell the younger generation of our country to do to renew the sense of belief and optimism in America that Ronald Reagan embodied? Yeah, read history. I mean, there have been a lot of tough times. I remember somebody telling me uh, right after 9-11, you've had the toughest presidency. I said, not even close. How about Abraham Lincoln? when the country was at war with each other. Or I just talked about a period of time that is so vivid in my mind still, uh, 50 years later. Uh, and it, it, was a, it was a tough period. And what she's got to understand is that our nation goes through divisive and tough times. But there's something unique about us. We've got a spirit that can't be extinguished. And that's why I'm so optimistic about the future of the country. And uh, one reason I'm really optimistic, think about this. Millions wore the uniform. They got PhDs in life at a young age. And so the, I'm back on subject here. And so the fundamental question is, can we help them transition? Because they're the leaders of the future. And that's what this whole project is about. Helping people take the skill set they learned in the military and transition them to bring those skills uh, into civilian life. And uh, there's a real challenge. There's a military-civilian divide. Uh, a lot of it has to do with language. Guy applies for a job. Vice President of Human Relations says, uh, what's your skill set? Sniper. <laughs> he, well, I don't think we need one this year. <laughs> but if the person had said, I'm disciplined, I work hard, I'm a team player, I believe in personal responsibility, I can take pressure. All of a sudden, the civilian takes a different look. And so one of the challenges we have is, as a society is understanding how the military uh, thinks and the military understands how civilians think. A lot of work's being done on that, by the way. Uh, a question so I'm optimistic, yeah. Uh, so the kids have Please. got to just, the kids have got to look, understand the history of the country. And you'll see. Uh, there's a resiliency to us uh, that should make people optimistic. My concern is, is that the rhetoric in politics can get so out of hand these days that good people say, I don't want to get involved in politics. But it's been that way. They used to call Abraham Lincoln an ape. I mean, so this isn't the first time that there's been name calling in politics. I think there might have been some names called at me at one time. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kathy in Chicago 
asks or writes, we were so glad to see your dad make it to the Super Bowl for the coin toss just days after leaving the hospital. How is he doing and how is your mom? They're both great, uh, given their uh, limitations. Dad can't walk, uh, he's confined to a wheelchair, and yet his spirit is joyful. Uh, I, uh, I went to see Dad three years ago, I think it was, in the ICU unit, Methodist Hospital in Houston. And he was, yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to an ICU uh, room, but it's not real warm. Anyway, so, uh, uh, and I said to Dad, uh, you know, Dad, I, my library's opening uh, in three months and sure want you there. And his voice was incredibly weak, and he said, I'll be there, son. And I left, you know, kind of tearful, thinking, well, probably not. And sure enough, when we opened up the library, one of the, the most important thing for me, I mean, it was nice to have all the former presidents, and the weather was great. Mm -hmm. A lot of friends were there, but Dad was on the stage. And, uh, and that, that flipping the coin reminded me uh, of him being there for the library opening. I mean, this guy has got a huge desire to live. And, you know, I've often thought about it. You know, I wrote a book about him, Fred, and I, I thought about it. Uh, it had to have started when he was 19 years old, floating in a raft off the island of Chichijima, mm -hmm. and, you know, worried about uh, the Japanese capturing him and, of course, killing him if they captured him. And, uh, and, and Mom's doing fine. She's, she's shrinking. Uh, <laughs> and as she does, her voice gets louder. And, uh, <laughs> but she's... Uh, She's a, uh, you know, she's a piece of work, is what she is. <laughs> Don't tell her I said it. Just our secret. Yeah. Uh, Mr. President, a question from the audience. Why did you criticize President Trump recently after not criticizing President Obama for eight yeah. years? So here's what happens. Uh, I'm asked the question, do I believe in free press? And the answer is absolutely, I believe in free press, as should every other American believe in free press. Because the press holds people to account. Power is very addictive. And it's corrosive if it becomes central to your life. And therefore, there needs to be uh, an independent group of people who hold you to account. And so I answered that question. Of course, the headlines were Bush criticizes Trump. And so therefore, I needed to say, there should be a free and independent press, but it ought to be accurate. I, uh, I made the decision after my presidency not to criticize President Obama, and I, and I feel the same way about President Trump. And people say, why? Uh, first of all, uh, the office of the president is more important than the occupant. And I believe it undermines... I believe that undermines the office of the presidency. Secondly, I understand there's a lot of critics. And I, I, don't, I, I don't want to make the president's job worse, no matter what political party it is. It's a hard job. And I think if a former president is out there second-guessing, uh, it's going to make it harder. And I want, I want anybody who's president to succeed. We're all in this deal together. And, uh, and so 
uh, I, I understand some of my, sometimes my remarks can be construed uh, as criticism. They're certainly not meant to be. And after I finish this book tour, you probably won't hear from me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I like privacy uh, now. The thing about the presidency is, you, you know, as people say, thank you for the sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice to serve a country you love. But you do sacrifice anonymity. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't walk down New Madison Avenue in New York without drawing flies, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, maybe I ought to put that a little better, without drawing a lot of, <laughs> without drawing a lot of attention. And, uh, you know, so I, 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 and I, I, to the extent that I can have privacy, I like it. And what, that's what art's done. It's given me a chance to kind of not be uh, like totally inside yourself, but it is a, uh, and I've mentioned a learning experience, but it's also very, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing how time moves, which is a little scary when you're 70. Bertha from Ridgecrest writes, the Bush family has always been viewed as standing for civility in politics. Are politics less civil today than in the past? And when did things change and why? Yeah, I don't think so. I think politics is, uh, has always been, you know, a, a rough sport. Uh, I, I, there's, there's always, and again, if, if you read history, you know, there's a, a lot of cases where in campaigns there was slander and, you know, people saying bad things about each other. I think what's changed, however, is how people get their news. So be, believe it or not, I'm, I'm really the first BlackBerry or first email president. It's just the email or the BlackBerry was a government issue right at the end of Bill Clinton's time. And uh, which uh, the reason I make that point is technology has changed so dramatically and so quickly, as has the dispersal of news. And so in the old days, it was the three, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And, uh, and now it's uh, from people get news and information from all over the place. And part of the issue with uh, this new, these new dispersal agents is that you can be anonymous. There's no responsibility. There's no accountability whatsoever. And, uh, and which lends itself to, you know, uh, you know some, some pretty angry messages going out. And the danger, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is that good people say, I don't want to get involved. And that's, that's a huge problem because our system is really only as good as the willingness of good people to be involved with it. A question for Michael in Buffalo. Ronald Reagan had the famous line of asking, are we better off than we were four years ago? Is the world a more dangerous place than it was four years ago? The world is a dangerous place. And uh, again, this may be taken as criticism of, of one of my successors, uh, and I don't really mean it to be. Uh, there is a lesson, however, when the United States decides to not take the lead and withdraw. Vacuums can be created when U.S. presence recedes, and that vacuum is generally filled with, uh, you know, people who don't share the same ideology, the same sense of human rights and human dignity and freedom that we do. And, uh, uh, you know, there's an isolationist tendency in our country, and I would argue that's uh, dangerous to our national security and doesn't befit the character of the country. You mentioned, um, uh, 
you talked a little bit about social media. Well, I, I looked on Twitter for the account of at George W. Bush, and it was described as locked. Yeah. Um, do you tweet, no. and do you recommend it to others? Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, no, I don't tweet. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, you know I, if there is a Twitter account under my name, somebody else is running it out of the Bush Center. <laughs> uh, you know, this is an interesting question. So how do you, like, we do good things at the Bush Center, but the only way I make news is if I criticize my successor or criticize my party. And so the fundamental question is, how can you get good news out so that people, for example, who are supporting our center, they can find out about it? And these, uh, like Twitter and Instagram and these things, are useful ways for us to communicate with, uh, with a, you know, a group of people that are interested in what we're doing. And so I guess we do. I don't. <laughs> I do do FaceTime with my... <laughs> well, that's high tech, isn't it? <laughs> Cutting edge uh, with my grandkids. It's like watching a home movie every day. It's awesome. By the way, they're doing well. Good. Yeah. And, and those medicines that you're taking? Yeah. <laughs> Too many to count, Fred. Too many to count. Uh, from your eight years as America's leader, what advice might you give those who lead our country today? I know you've talked a little bit about what you don't want to do, but what advice might you give those who are thinking of running in the future? Yeah. Uh, my advice starts with know what you don't know and find people who do know what you don't know and listen to them. My advice is that the job is different once you get in. It looks one way, and then you get in the Oval Office and... Uh, you know, it, it, just, it looks different, <laughs> trust me. Uh, uh, and my advice, though, is if you're thinking about it, go for it. Unless, of course, your whole life is wound up in whether you win or lose. Then don't go for it. You know, my dad uh, never won the state of Texas uh, until 1988. Uh, so he loses in 64. Uh, he loses in 70. He loses to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And because, uh, and I think this, uh, you know, we're not very good at cycle babble, but uh, I think because his priorities were his faith in his family and his friends, that loss, while it stung, was tolerable. And then he wins in 1988 and becomes president of the United States. It's hard to believe, isn't it? You can't win your home state three times and you end up being president which I think speaks volumes about the question you just asked, mm -hmm. which is take risk. But make sure you got the right foundation on which to take risk. More from a Reagan Forum featuring President George W. Bush after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. 
That's reaganfoundation.org slash give. Now back to a Reagan form featuring President George W. Bush. Some more questions about painting, if we could. Um, would you have painted in the White House if you knew you had these skills? Uh, you know, those are like, there's no do-overs. <laughs> I mean, you know, would you, would I have taken down the sign, Mission Accomplished, on the USS Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I doubt it. I mean, I, you, you, like, you know, it is a all-consuming job. Uh, you think about uh, the presidency and the problems you're dealing with and issues you're dealing with all the time. And what's startling is when you're not president because uh, mankind can adjust to the environments in which they live pretty adaptable. And the next day, like in Crawford, uh, after you have to go get the coffee yourself, uh, <laughs> you wake up and realize you no longer have that sense of responsibility. And it's pretty startling. And it's pretty startling. And so I guess my answer to your question is, the reason you have the sense of responsibility is because the job is all-consuming. Um, do you see the world differently now through the eyes of an artist? I do. In what ways? Well, I was on Ellen DeGeneres' show today, and uh, <laughs> who, by the way, is a very fine person. And uh, I looked in her eyes, and I'm saying, I can mix that color. <laughs> uh, I see colors and shadows that I never did before. I see the sky differently. And so, yeah, I do. I do. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if it's made me a more centered person or a more sensitive person. I don't know all that stuff. But I know this, that uh, it is, uh, has changed my life uh, to the better. Does Laura paint with you or no. separately? Or <laughs> Nor does she play golf. <laughs> Now By she whose choice? Yeah. Uh, well, she's not, she doesn't like golf. And, no, she's not a painter. She is a, a, a positive critic. <laughs> she's helpful. Mar Laura's got a really good eye and loves art. And, uh, you know, she's made some very meaningful and positive suggestions and some not-so-positive suggestions. <laughs> but she takes a great interest in, in the art, uh, Fred, and... Uh, with this exhibit, these paint, all these paintings are, are going to be displayed at the uh, Bush Center starting today. And uh, they had a huge crowd, by the way, I heard. And, uh, and so Laura went over there to make sure that the colors on the walls worked well with the paintings. And she's taken a huge, big interest in, in uh, the project. And you know, like my mom, she is, you know, my biggest fan. I mean, they're, they're unbelievably positive. Uh, you know, I guess it's to encourage me to keep doing it. You once said, if you aim for big change, you shouldn't expect to be rewarded by short-term history. Yeah. Do you feel that history has misjudged you or has been fair to you? I don't think it's judged me yet properly because I think it's impossible to judge a president in the short term. I think there has to be the reach of time mm -hmm. to be able to analyze the decisions the president makes and its consequences over time. And so uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I wrote decision points, and thank you for pointing it out. Uh, because I wanted people to at least have an understanding of why I made the decisions I made, regardless of whether or not you agreed with them. It, 
at least you ought to try to learn why. And uh, I also wrote it, and I put it in the introduction, that it would be a data point for future historians. So if they're genuinely sincere about trying to find out, you know, my, my place in history, then, uh, then they ought to read this book, not as the data point, but as a data point. And so, you know, we've got this library down there, very much like the Reagan Library here. It's full of all kinds of archives. And, you know, some of the stuff is, hasn't been declassified yet, but it will be. And historians will come and research. And, and in order to, I think, write an objective history, there has to be more presidents follow me. So it, all, it, 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 it enables one to see perspective. And uh, so I'm not that worried about it. I really am not. I, I gave it my all, and that's all you can do. What would people be surprised to learn about you since you left the Oval Office? That I'm a painter. <laughs> you know, I, when I wrote that book, the first one, uh, I was thrilled to be able to say, you know, a lot of people are going to be shocked about this book. They didn't think I could read, much less write. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> and so uh, you know, I think uh, they'll be surprised at that. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm not sure what else. Uh, I think they're surprised I'm not out there bloviating all the time about my successor. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I should have given you this answer. Uh, when President Obama was president, I used to get a lot of calls from the heartland saying, you need to speak out. Now I'm getting calls from the coast saying, you need to speak out. <laughs> This next question is back uh, to your paintings. Um, it's human nature to be private about wounds and scars. How did you get the subjects of your paintings to open up and reveal an aspect of themselves that many of us might choose to hide? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, uh, earn their trust is the first thing. Uh, and I, I think I was able to earn their trust uh, several ways. One, I told our troops and their families that uh, as president, I would support him 100%. And I think they saw that. Secondly, uh, you know, when you're riding mountain bikes with people, there's a lot of camaraderie, you know, a lot of uh, you know, needling. But it's a way to earn somebody's trust. And we set it up so that our vets can speak. Uh, and we encourage them to be, you know, open. Uh, some more open than others. But when you're sitting there as a vet, I suspect, and another pal gets up and talks about an invisible wound, it gives you confidence to speak yourself. And so here's what's important to understand. The challenge for society is to get a vet to, you know, get rid of the stigma. The best people to do that are vets. You know, if somebody comes out of combat and goes into, you know, a doctor's office and says, I got a problem, and the doctor really doesn't understand how to speak to that person. But if somebody seeks out Brian, who dealt with PTS, by the way, and says, I, I, I got these issues, Brian can say, I understand what you're saying, man. And the other aspect is what works. And so we've got this a wellness alliance that we're raising money for, which mates up uh, you know, these peer-to-peer uh, -peer counseling groups, Red, White, and Blue, Team Rubicon, 
with groups that work. UCLA, for example, has got a fabulous brain center. Uh, the Cohen Centers, uh, Langone Center in New York, uh, NYU. And these are places that are, uh, have proven that they're able to help these vets who want help to begin with. And, uh, and so that's why we're doing what we're doing, yeah. And so anyway, they talk about it, some more than others. Turner, look, I'm sitting next to Turner. I mean, yeah, probably made me a little nervous, I suspect, sitting next to the former commander-in-chief. And I said, why are you here, Turner? And he opens up, like, boom. And it was a part of his healing process, it turns out. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know why Turner told me what he told me, but as a result, uh, Turner's now a healer himself. He's part of the peer-to-peer -peer counseling network. In, in talking about these groups that serve veterans, I know uh, your, the website mentions that 80% of the, the organizations that serve veterans raise less than $100,000 a year. Yeah. What can we do to help? What can Americans do? Well, the, do question, the first question is, do the 80% that raise $100,000 a year do good work? And so, therefore, uh, there's a, you know, uh, pretty confident still on our website is this opportunity to take a look at the characteristics one ought to be looking for before they give money to an organization. I mean, the amazing thing is, is how the response to our vets this time compared to the Vietnam War is overwhelming. And there's, I, don't know, I think there's 35,000 or some NGOs set up to help our vets, some extraordinary number. And the real challenge is what works and what doesn't work. And so, look, we don't want to be the jury at the Bush Center, but we do want to highlight programs that we know are effective. And I'd like Team Rubicon's an interesting example, started by a really cool guy who takes vets and puts them into, you know, like where a hurricane is hit or a earthquake is hit. And they're part of the helping the locals recover. And it's a peer-to-peer -peer counseling group. You've got vets dealing with the same issues, all serving somebody else, which, by the way, is also part of healing. Uh, in, in the book, there are a number of people who are recovering nicely because they're now working to help somebody else's life improve. By the way, it, you don't have to be a vet to realize the benefits of serving your mankind, a fellow man. You mentioned uh, in, on the site also that there's a lot of talk about the 1%, but you point to the 1% being the, the warriors who defend the remaining 99% yeah. of Americans. Yeah. I thought you were talking about the 1% of financial. No, this, this is the... Uh, That's not the, me. The, the warriors. I'm on a government pension. <laughs> What, what can the government... 200000 a year less my Medicare premium. <laughs> is, there, is there something that um, the government can be doing better for veterans? Uh, you know, look, the VA has got some very good programs. Uh, I've talked to many vets who say I've been helped by the VA. I've also talked to vets who get frustrated by the VA. So step one is to make sure that the VA is responsive. But the best way for the VA to work is to do joint ventures with private sector programs that are effective. And, uh, and by the way, the, the new head of the VA and the former head of the VA is very uh, receptive to that idea. And. Uh, you know, we, we intend to, you know, we're gaining some credibility in the vet field for understanding and knowing what we're talking about, and they want our input to make sure that the help that every vet deserves is as seamless as possible. I'm told this uh, by, the, by, um, by the former uh, secretary of the VA. This is an interesting fact. 
that uh, part of the reason why the PTS, notice I've dropped the D, it's not a disorder, it's an injury. Who wants to be labeled as somebody with a disorder? You know, you're gonna hire somebody with a disorder? You're more likely to hire somebody that has an injury. And, uh, and uh, what was the brilliant point I was gonna make? <laughs> what the government can do? Yeah, and so this guy says there's no question that the pipeline is getting clogged for PTS. That's right, notice I dropped a D. And, uh, <laughs> 70. And, uh, uh, it turns out Vietnam vets are beginning to show symptoms of PTS now, after all these years. So they've been in combat, and they come home, and they're raising their families, and they got a job, and they retire. And they're going, something's wrong. And they check into the VA, because they're exhibiting symptoms of PTS. And all of a sudden, you've got, uh, you know, Vietnam vets, there's a lot of them beginning to head into the VA, and so the VA has got to deal with it. That's why these joint ventures are really important, mm -hmm. to, so that, the, you know, that as many people can get help as quickly as possible without uh, frustrating our vets. The problem with frustrating a vet that's just come out of combat is if he doesn't get help immediately, there's a threat of self-medication, and Brian will tell you there's a lot of that. And the challenge is to you know, prevent that from happening as best as we can. By the way, I used to self-medicate. I quit drinking in 86. Who will be the subject of your next portrait and why? Uh, actually, it's an interesting question, me. <laughs> so I looked at a lot of paintings of past masters, and it turns out they paint themselves a lot. We're kind of a, I guess, kind of an arrogant lot. And, uh, uh, but one reason why you do that is because if you foul it up, it doesn't upset anybody. <laughs> so Cedric Huckabee, uh, one of my instructors, paints these giant portraits. He's the guy that suggested I paint vets. He's a fabulous painter, by the way. You ought to Google him. And, uh, uh, and they're, they're big faces. This guy happens to be an African-American, and he's painted the faces nobody knows. He knows them because they're his relatives and people he grew up with, and they're great paintings. And uh, so he said, you ought to paint a huge portrait, uh, six foot big. And it's, so it's me and my face on six foot canvas. That's a lot of face. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm working on that. It takes a long time. Which, and so Cedric, uh, you know, has helped me through this. And it turns out each part of your face becomes almost like a portrait unto itself. You know, you can spend like four or five days on an ear because it's so big until you get it right. And, uh, and so I'm doing that right now. It's a fascinating experience. And, uh, and then I painted Freddie. Now, Freddie, uh, so Laura and I go to the SPCA in Dallas, mm -hmm. and uh, we want to see it. A great friend of ours has donated quite a bit of money to this. It's supposedly one of the best in the country, so I wanted to go see it. And we get in there, and uh, there is a uh, dog foster mother holding this little tiny puppy. And of course, they have to tell us the story that uh, this dog had been abandoned in a construction site along with brothers and sisters. The others had been adopted. And uh, they had to hold Freddie back, name is Freddie, uh, because uh, uh, he wasn't eating very well. And so, and so Laura picked up the dog. <laughs> and it was over. <laughs> and so my aide is named Freddie Ford. 
and he happened to be in the line of sight. Uh, and I said, okay, the dog's now named Freddy. I don't know if he thought it was an honor or not, but <laughs> I painted him. Guy's awesome, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this with your dog, but we did a DNA. Yeah, to find out, uh, like, you know, how unpure Freddie is. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got one whole line that says mixed breed. And he's got another line that says Chow, Bijan, Staffordshire Terrier, which as I understand is a pit bull, and uh, Border Collie. He's an awesome little guy, by the way. Have you ever thought about being an art instructor? No. I'm still an art, still an art pupil. <laughs> you know, every brushstroke's a learning experience. And that's why it's important to have people around who understand that and are willing to help you kind of reach out, continue to press. And, uh, you know, I used to paint real, like, real tight. So if you look at those world leaders, there's not much expression in it. I mean, it looks like Tony Blair or, you know, Putin or Angela Merkel. But there was no like, there was no like confidence and not a lot of paint on it. And some of these warriors uh, paintings have got a lot of paint on it and big brush strokes. And uh, it's just an evolving style. And uh, my instructors helped me gain the confidence necessary to paint that way. And uh, anyway. Um, this one's anonymous, but I should ask it anyway. It says, uh, would you be available to do a portrait of our family for their Christmas card? No. And <laughs> This, it looks like Brad Freeman's handwriting. Yeah. I say. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't. Here's the problem. I mean, people say, well, you paint something for charity. You paint one for charity. You're painting, you spend the rest of your life painting for charity. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not, not going to do that. Thanks. Okay. Nor will I ever sell one. Uh, you know, these are, uh, this collection here uh, of 98 paintings will go, to, uh, uh, giving it to the Bush Foundation Endowment Fund. And, uh, you know, it, it may be worth something 30 years from now. If they start running out of money, then, uh, you know, they can sell it. Uh, I did make a G. Clay, which Brian's going to get. I don't know if you got it yet or not. So I made a G. Clay, which is a fancy word for a sophisticated copy of each painting. I promise to only make one copy per portrait, and I'm going to send it to each vet. That's good. A couple questions about portraits specifically. And this one says, it says that artists who seek to do portraits have to be the toughest. You can mispaint a landscape or a still life, and who's going to complain? Exactly. But if you decide to capture the image of another human on campus, uh, on canvas, you better get it right. Mr. President, have any of your subjects complained? Well, yeah, Laura. Uh, <laughs> I actually painted Jenna's baby once, uh, Mila, and of course she complained. Pretty impressionist, I thought it was nice. She didn't like it. Uh, then I painted another and didn't like it. And so I finally painted something that looked like the Gerber baby. <laughs> uh, this question is also about specifics of portraiture. It says, portraiture is considered the most complex form of art, requiring not just artistic skill, but also an insight into a subject's character. That usually means a special rapport needs to develop between the artist and the subject. Did that occur with you, and, and do you remain in contact with the subjects of your paintings? I do. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, I think in order to make a portrait work, you have to have feeling about, you know, a feeling about who you're painting. And I, as I mentioned earlier, 
I, I paint with great respect uh, for, for each person. Uh, I, I stay in touch with them. As a matter of fact, Brian uh, has been uh, rode at the ranch, came back to the ranch to ride again. Uh, we have got what we call Club 43, which are people who've been to our events, and uh, we expand it every year, and, uh, and we ex hope the alumni come back. They formed bonds among themselves. It's a network of vets, for example. Uh, I saw Melissa, I saw four vets on the Today Show the other day. I went to McDill and saw five others. Uh, I saw two today at Ellen. And so, yeah, I stay in touch with them. And, you know, some write in, some send pictures in, and uh, uh, I'm, they're my friends. That's great. Um, you've talked about the art, the paintings. What inspired you to make the book out of the paintings? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it's a, I guess it's a little risky to put your paintings out there. Uh, I mean, somebody may not like them, but you know what? Some people didn't like some of my decisions, so I'm kind of used to it. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to raise money for the foundation, and I wanted to tell these stories. I think when you read them, uh, you'll be moved, and uh, because they're... Uh, you know, there's stories of courage, injury, recovery, um, willingness to help others. And I also wanted to highlight the invisible wounds. That's my biggest concern. I mean, the prosthetics are great. Look, I'm riding mountain bikes with people who've lost a leg, some of whom been back in combat on one leg. Solheim on the cover of the book, Self, the first portrait in there. They lose their legs, and, they, and they've been in combat twice. I mean, the prosthetics are great. It's the invisible wounds that concern me. And, uh, and so this book is a way to highlight that. And hopefully it'll inspire, uh, you know, people to help, people to, vets to come forward and talk about it, uh, you know, caregivers to rethink the care they're giving if it's not working. Uh, it's really to call, you know, it's, it's to call people to, uh, to a, a very important cause. And I've got a platform still. It's not quite as big as the old one. Uh, but I intend to use it to help our vets for the rest of my life. And this is just one way to do so. Mr. President, we, we've just about run out of time, but I'd like to thank you for doing this book. I, I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy, and I just can't say how inspirational it is to read this book. And what a great gift it is to give to people in the military, military families. And I would just uh, urge everybody to pick up a copy, Amazon, or go to bushcenter.org. Or Washington uh, Post. <laughs> That's an uh, inside joke. Right. Uh, and especially, He's doing a fine job, by the way. Well, thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I would say especially the opportunity to have the, of the, the deluxe book, which is, is signed by the president, and the, the, author, the painter and the author is, is just a wonderful thing. And uh, I would say uh, encourage people to get that if you can. Thanks, Thank you Fred. for joining us, yeah, Mr. Thank President. you all for coming. We've been beyond fortunate to host George W. Bush at the Reagan Library on multiple occasions. He first came to deliver remarks on November 19, 1999, during the Reagan Foundation's year-long series of major policy speeches by candidates seeking the office of president in 2000. Senator John McCain and Steve Forbes also spoke that year as part of the series. He next came back as President of the United States on October 21, 2005 to help us officially open our brand new Air Force One Pavilion. 
On November 18, 2010, less than a year after leaving office, he came back again to discuss his brand new memoir, Decision Points. Both the November 18, 2010 and March 1, 2017 speeches can be found in their entirety on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org slash events. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.